The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The text we just read from Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and if I may add a little interjection, amazingly, incomprehensibly, can you believe it? Can you believe it, Christian fellow heirs with Christ? <laughs> heirs with Christ. <laughs> Glorious. <laughs> Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. It is incredible, yet again, Father, that I stand here and rightly, freely, justly, sincerely call you Father. I don't deserve it one bit. Nobody else does here either. We all deserve to see in you wrath being poured out from you upon us. We, we only deserve to see this this wave and to only see you through a, a wave of, of wrath coming upon us because of our rebellion and our sin against you because we because we've believed the lies of the evil one and if it were up to us we would eagerly choose those lies every time but you are infinitely gracious and merciful and you have pulled us from that ocean of wrath up above the surface. You pulled us up and you've cleansed us. And you have saved us by your Son. You saved us in the only way that would be both just and would make us to stand just before you by pouring out all that wrath due to us upon him so that we may stand before you as your children, as accepted before you as your son is. Amazing. So, we are already seated with him in the heavenly places, your word tells us. It's as good as done. One day you're going to return for us. And you will be glorified in us and we will share in your glory. What a day. 
what an eternity that will be. So, until then, we, we need you to come and work in us. And so I pray, Father, would you come this morning and do divine work. I, of all people, am not sufficient for these things. And, and yet we need you to come and fill us and, and work in us and, and enable us to actually live lives that really would accrue to, to the glory of Christ on that day, Lord. So I pray, don't let us waste our lives, good Father, but enable us. Would you do this? Would you take your word this morning and, and fill us and cause it to really dwell richly within us and produce a rich harvest of honor to your Son? That's the whole purpose of history, and that would be really good for us. So would you do it, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, a warm welcome to you. Glad to have you with us. And I'm, my name is Jed Brown. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, Steve Clark, will be back next week. We find ourselves at the, the end of this, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. He spent the first chapter in this letter encouraging the church that, that he had founded. He's encouraging them by, by telling them, looking from the outside in, that they, they, really, they really did hope in God, that they really are depending upon Jesus Christ as their, as their provider, as their Lord, as their Savior. They really are Christians. And there's a big problem with this. This did not sit well, though, with the city that they lived in. Thessalonica had a, had a special relationship with Caesar himself. Caesar, Caesar gave them special economic privileges. And in return, the city built a temple where Caesar was actually worshipped as a god. The city trusted in Caesar for provision. He was their source of prosperity. This is why the city persecuted the church. The city was loyal to Caesar. And these Christians were calling someone else Lord and Savior and provider. So he encourages them, Paul does, by reminding them that, that, that God is not acting randomly here. He's, he's not acting impotently in their struggles. In fact, God in their suffering is actually producing evidence, evidence that will be brought forward on that day when when Christ returns, evidence that will show that they really are in Christ, that they really should share in His glory. That's something fascinating in this letter. Paul never prays that their sufferings would be taken away. Fascinating. He only points them in hope to the day when Christ returns, when they certainly will experience relief. Chapter 1, verse 7. Now, it's not that Paul never prayed this way in private for them, but, but his point is that these sufferings are actually part of God's appointed way that He is bringing glory, glory to His Son through them in the world. This, this suffering is the, is the black backdrop 
in this, in this grand drama that is being played out in the world. And, and, and against this black backdrop, the glory, the white hot glory of Christ is being shown, is being popped before that. The sufferings are not, not against God's plan. God is not doing random here. He's not impotent. They are actually part of God's appointing, appointed way that He brings good into the world. So He reminds them in chapter 1, verse 12 of their purpose that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in them and they in Him when He returns. He's concerned that in their afflictions that they would be diverted from this purpose. That they would waste their lives. Which is possible. It's possible for all of us to waste our lives. And as we said last week, what, what a tragedy this would be. What a tragedy for a Christian to waste his life. We who have come to possess inestimable riches in Christ. And then to not make use of them to not enjoy them, to not use them to bring glory to Christ, to not use them to actually fulfill the purpose that God has given us in this life, a waste, and it is possible, but it is not necessary. So this is Paul's primary burden of the letter, that, that you and I would, would not waste our lives. We all are, in various ways, sufferers. We all suffer. Life is hard but we, we struggle, we work, we toil, we labor. And these are appointed ways by which God glorifies His Son through us. And it is good and great that God should bring glory to His Son because the point of clearest glory of the Son is the point of our greatest good, the cross. God has brought to us an inexhaustible blessing inestimable riches through Christ enduring infinite suffering on the cross. The two run together there. So Paul prays in chapter 1, verse 11, that not, not, not despite your sufferings, but, but in your sufferings, that God would, would cause thoughts to occur to you. Thoughts in your ordinary life, in the ordinary circumstances of your life. Thoughts that would Thoughts about how to glorify Christ, how to, how to increase His honor. And as you step out and act on those thoughts and ideas, every work of faith, it says there, Paul prays that God would fulfill those ideas and actions, that they really would, verse 12, glorify the name of the Lord Jesus, to glorify, to, to increase His honor, to enhance His standing in the world. The people would see him, would behold him, that he would really would be displayed before real people and that they would trust him and, and, and in seeing him, rejoice in him so that when he returns, he would get more glory through them as well as you throughout all of eternity. So our purpose in life for those who are in Christ is to increase the honor of his name to increase the honor of His name in ordinary life, in the ordinary life, the ordinary work, the ordinary roles that God has given you. They are not actually ordinary. They are meant to be the very means, the very channel by which God pushes the greatest thing in the universe 
Christ into the world. As we approach chapter 3, a, a new subject arises, and yet the issue is really still the same, the reputation of the name of Christ. <clears throat> but he, he writes here to correct some problems. Some people are idle. And Paul's going to give them some instructions, some hard instructions. As we, as we listen in, I pray that we will heed his commands as well, that God will enable us to heed these commands and thereby really, truly bring glory to Christ in whatever role, whatever work God has called you to. So let me read chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, <clears throat> excuse me, and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of my genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The word of the Lord. I'm working to unpack this big point this morning from the text. Your work is God's means of displaying Christ through you, enabled entirely by grace. Your work is God's means of displaying Christ through you, enabled entirely by grace. By grace. Now, I want to unpack this big point this morning by asking what it means that, that grace enables us. And then also by looking more closely from the text about how work is a God appointed means of displaying Christ, of, of pushing good, not only general good in general, but the greatest good in the world, Christ into the world. So, first, in order to glorify Christ, Point number one, we need satisfaction in God. In order to glorify Christ, we need satisfaction in God. 
I get this from verses 1 through 5, but especially verse 5. The word finally in verse 1 means that Paul is moving on to a different subject, an ongoing problem, really. He's going to ask the church to do some hard things, and so in these verses, he's, he's giving them the, the needed encouragement um, that they require to actually do these things. He's setting them up in a good way to do what he's commanding them to do. So he first asks for prayer himself, he and his friends. In verse 2, he prays, here he asks for prayer, that they may be delivered from wicked and evil men, because not all have faith, because not all who claim the name of Christ have actually believed on him and have been transformed. Some claim the name of Christ, but behind the smile and the veneer of niceness lies all kinds of disorder and wickedness and selfish motives. So please pray, please pray that not if, but but when we fall into the hands of such men, that God would deliver us. But really, verse 1, you're not really praying for for us. In in praying for us, you're praying for the word of the Lord, the the gospel to speed ahead, to speed ahead unencumbered and to be be honored like like an athlete entering the stadium and making his final lap before he breaks the tape at the finish line. And the crowds are cheering. He prays that the word of the Lord through them, they are God's means by which the word of the Lord, the gospel, would bring Christ into the world and his people would behold Christ through the gospel. They would see him and honor the gospel because they get Christ. So pray, pray that God would make us a useful means for the word to be honored in this way. And I I ask you, Paul is saying here, I I ask you to pray for us this way because I'm about to ask God to enable you to be used in this very same way. I'm an example for you. And I'm confident that God will do it because, verse 3, He is faithful. He will accomplish what He wants. So I know, verse 3, that He will establish you. He will strengthen you. He will finish what he starts. At every turn, when you face affliction and opposition, behind it all, behind it all is the evil one and his lies. But I know, I know God will protect you from this one. I know he will. I'm confident of this. And because of my confidence in him and that you are in him, I'm confident that you're going to do what I'm about to command you to do. It's going to be hard, it's not pleasant on both sides of the equation, and yet it is necessary. It's necessary because of the gospel, because of who you are in Christ. So I'm confident that you will do this. And then he sets them up most strongly with verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is crucial. We can skip over a verse like this, but it is vital. In fact, if, if they and we don't get this, it, it will be utterly impossible to obey. Utterly impossible. Maybe for a little while. You can fake it for a little while. But over the long haul, uh-uh. Not in the vice of affliction. Not in the, the slow boil of ongoing difficulty. 
Paul puts this here because he knows he's commanding hard things. He's, he's throwing his soldiers into battle, and he knows that they need God to actually enable them to do it. They need a divine change at the, at the core of their being, in their hearts. The only way they will endure in this fight is having their hearts directed or, or led to, to settle upon and to rest in and to be gripped by, to be owned by, to rejoice in, the love of God for them and the steadfastness of Christ by which that love came to them. The love of God, which he displays most clearly in Christ and his cross. The, the, the love of God, which through no merit of our own, chose us and saved us. He, he chose us and he saved us and so he, he designed the gospel to come to us through the means of another person. And then he enabled us by his Spirit to hear it and believe it. To believe it and to rejoice in it and to find all inestimable riches there in Christ. The love of God which united us to Christ so that his new life, his resurrection life, is now ours. That we share in his resurrection even now. That we may truly live new life. His love, which has as its goal nothing less, nothing less, not, not just your salvation, <laughs> not just your sanctification, not just to, to clean you up and to shape you up, but the very glory of Christ. <laughs> that we would possess all of His glory, that we truly would be inheritors with Christ. Amazing. Love of God, which right now, Christian, but between the cross and his return, holds you in his hands in a firm grip of his love that will never, ever break. As Paul goes on to say at the end of Romans 8, nothing, nothing, no affliction that you will ever, ever face can ever break this grip of his love around you, Christian. Nothing. No person, no nation, no trial, no sickness, no weapon, no enemy. Nothing can break that. He loves you that much. Why? Because he loves you. As I said last week, I can't get past, I can't get beyond that. I can't tell you more than that. From eternity past, God loved you, and so he loves you. Like this. So in this, in, in this grip of love, he is leading you right now to that moment of indescribable glory. Christian, he wants it a lot more for you than you do. <laughs> he will stop at nothing to take you there. He controls every atom of the universe, every atom of your existence for this purpose. In his love, you have the immeasurable riches of God himself. Because you are united to him, you are united to Christ. God himself is now your perfect father. He's, he's provided his spirit for you, and, and his spirit prays for you in your trials with, with groans, groans that, that are perfectly matched to your circumstances, and yet, perfectly in keeping with the Father's will, you are taken care of, Christian, every moment. You are in the grip of His love. 
Your father leaves. Your father loves you too much to leave anything to chance. So before we get into the details of these, of these commands in chapter 3, see that what you really need is your heart directed to the gospel. Not, not behavioral techniques, not evangelism strategies, although they could be useful. But what you need most, what you need most is your heart directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ for you. You need your heart directed there. You, you need to see the love of God for you, and you need your heart to truly rejoice in it, to revel in it, to be gripped by it. And you can't do this. You need God to do it. You need God to do this. We must return to the gospel. We must be people who are constantly, constantly reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ, of our identity, of what we already possess in Christ. We must remind ourselves of the vast, limitless treasure that is ours through the gospel. But we must do it in humble dependence upon Christ Himself. He must commission His Spirit to come and apply the gospel to our lives to cause our hearts to be directed there. He must cause our eyes to really see His glory there. This is necessary. As to, to put it in John Piper's famous phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. We become satisfied in Him as our hearts rest in His love for us. We must, because God has appointed that life would come into the world through suffering, through trial, through labor, through toil. Christ is our example of this, is He not? And his steadfast endurance and all that he endured. And so Paul places himself as another example before the Thessalonians. See, it was the same way with me. See, it is always this way. In this deluded and deceived and dying world, it will always be this way until Christ returns. This world corrupted by sin, this world under the curse, it will always be this way. So we are called by a Savior who has gone to a cross and died on a cross, and we are called by Him to take up our own cross and to die to self. And the only way we die to self is by finding satisfaction and rest in the love of God, and the only way we get there is by God Himself doing it. So we return to the gospel day after day, reminding ourselves that we are loved unbreakably by this Father, that we are secure in this love, as secure as Christ himself is. But we do so not resting on the increase of our knowledge, but we do so praying, praying desperate for God to come and cause us to really see all that we have in Christ, all that God has done for us, all that God has done for us, all his steadfastness in Christ. All Christ's patient endurance. He who gave up his right to be at the right hand of the Father, instead humbling himself by coming to earth as a man. He who, though conceived by the Spirit, endured normal childbirth. He who, who submitted in obedience to a mom and a dad, though, though he himself is the standard of obedience. He who learned the trade of a carpenter, though he is the maker of trees. 
He who, though possessing heaven itself, had no place to lay his head. Well, the friend of all humanity misunderstood, rejected, and betrayed. Though the Lord of all power exhausted. Though the God-man needing to pray. Though perfectly pleasing the Father, experiencing His wrath in the garden as sweat like drops of blood came down. Though possessing perfect dignity, mocked and jeered. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross who for the joy of complete obedience and perfect loyalty to the Father, who for the joy of loving you, of getting you, Christian, endured the cross. Exposure, suffocation, mocking, though the life experiencing death. And even then, though raised to life, enduring doubts from people like Thomas. We have come to, to rest inside the, the love of God, the infinitely valuable love of God through the infinite steadfastness of Christ, which makes us now his beloved children. We are adopted. He is our Father, and we are his children. And so everything that Paul will now call us to do is really just you and I, Christian, bearing the family resemblance. <laughs> it's really just you and I doing what Daddy does, imitating God, imitating God and how He came to us and saved us. It's really about remembering who we are as beloved children and moving out into the world Bearing the family resemblance. So we bring God into the world by means of the work and the roles that He's given us, which leads us to this, the second point. In order to glorify Christ, we need work to display Christ's provision. We need work to display Christ's provision. Paul asked the church in verse 6 to, to strongly address a problem. People who are idle. They're not working to provide for themselves. So, so Paul comes down hard. Verse 6, he says, stay away from these people. In verse 14, he says, make note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Your, your, your goal is that he would experience shame. This is strong stuff. Now, Obviously, not working, glomming on to people, being a sponge, is not good. That, that does not glorify Christ. But, but what precisely is the problem? Why, why does Paul come down so hard? Well, the, the first problem is that idle hands make the devil's work. We, we, we are made to bear loads. We are made to, to bear work so that we would not drift off into sin. So Paul is concerned that we would all display Christ through holiness, and, and work is, is helpful in this. But I, I don't think that's his primary concern here. These people are clearly resisting Paul. They're, they're resisting the Word of God. They're resisting Christ. They're resisting the example that was, that was put before them. 
He reminds them in verses 7 and 8 of how they set an example for the church. Paul and his friends didn't ask anyone for food. He, he made tents and he worked hard. The, the, the sense in verse 8 is that they engaged in work that was drudgery, like monotonous, difficult work, hard manual labor. They had the right to ask for food and shelter, verse 9, but they wanted to give the Thessalonians an example to imitate. So like any good teacher, Paul started by example. But then in verse 10, he taught them this too. If anyone is not willing to work in this way, not willing to work, not able, but who is not willing to work, he does not eat. Previously, he instructed them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, to do the same thing, to work hard. And now these people have still not obeyed Paul. So he warns them and he instructs the community, verse 15, to warn them. But warn them of what? What exactly is going on here? Some believe that the problem is that these people are lazing around because they've misunderstood Christ's return. They think that Christ is coming back tomorrow or next week and next month at the latest, so there's no sense working. Let's just sit around and wait. And it's possible that this is the problem. But it is also very possible that these people had engaged in special relationships with, with rich, powerful patrons in the city, Christian or non-Christian. In, in ancient culture, it was very common for, for rich patrons to give people their food, their money, their help, like Caesar to the city of Thessalonica. And in return, these clients... Now they didn't have to work for their food, would spend all their time as busybodies, as meddlers running around the city, advancing the interests of their provider, of the person who is actually providing for them, their patron. Instead of relying on God to provide for their food through the normal means of hard work, they were relying on a mere man. And in return, they meddled in public affairs, trying to increase the standing of their patron in the community, not Christ. This matches the meaning of the word idle used in this text in verses uh, 6 and 11. It's not so much sitting still, but it means to be active but, but disordered, not productive. They were disordered. They weren't doing their work quietly. They were doing it boisterously because they were all about town doing whatever was in the interest of their patron instead of doing hard work to the benefit of other people and to provide for themselves. So though they claimed the name of Christ, a wealthy man was their provider and their loyalty was to him. It was their interest that they were spending their time pursuing. So what does this look like in the modern day? Well, it could be the person who really doesn't actually work at the office, but who spends all his time ingratiating himself to the boss and doing things that will appeal to the boss. The boss really becomes his provider, not God. Or the person who is so interested and active in politics that he shows that his real provider is not God, but his chosen candidate or party or 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 a political system. 
And it also shows up in all of our people-pleasing, in all of our efforts to be comforted and secured, to be established by human providers, by the approval of man, not by the provision of God. So uh, these people weren't just uh, in danger of sinning. And they weren't just resisting Paul's authority. And they weren't just wasting their life by pursuing frivolous passing pursuits. They were actually saying one thing but displaying another. They were saying that they served a risen, living, all-powerful king who rules everything, but instead of receiving provision from him through the means that he appointed, they were being provided for by a rich patron. They were spending their time and their energy to enhance the standing of someone else, another provider. They were de-glorifying Christ with their life. They were wasting their life. So part of the warning is this. You are de-glorifying Christ with how you work, with how you live out there in public. You need to quit that and work in such a way. Engage in work that loves other people and that depends upon God for provision in your life, not other people. You need to work in such a way that only God and Christ is seen as your provider. All our work has three purposes. It, it, the first is to provide for our own needs so that others would not be burdened by us. To be the means by which God pushes good into the world, which we will talk more about. But then it is also meant to bring God glory as He is the one that is seen to be the provider, to be the one. We are only means. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther said about our work, that it is God who is actually really at work in our work. That as we work, God wears us as His mask. And it's God that's actually at work ordering the world to push good into the world, to provide for the world. We're but a, a pipe. We're but the means by which God does this. God is actually doing good to the world through us, wearing us as His mask as He, as he pushes good into the world. He provides for others through us. And He provides for us as He wears His mask with the teacher, the banker, the baker, the dry cleaner, the pastor, the doctor, the mother, the programmer. Whether they're saved or not. Our work is a means by which God demonstrates His love for the world. So in this way, our work is not just an act of work. It is not just providing for ourselves. It is an act of love towards the world. That's what it's meant to be. And it can be as we rest in the love of God for us. But our work serves another purpose, that we may display Christ himself. Paul worked hard, toiled, and labored so that God would be seen as his provider. He wanted God and no one else to be seen as the one providing through his work. He wasn't looking for handouts because he was, he was zealous. He was loyally interested in the Word of God having nothing in its way. It was an act of loyalty towards God, His loyalty having been bought by, by the lavish blessing, the lavish gift of His patron, the gift of Christ. 
So he was zealous, zealously desiring that the word of the Lord might have nothing in its way as it ran forward looking to be honored. Paul wanted nothing standing in the way of the Thessalonians receiving it. He wanted nothing standing in the way of the Thessalonians seeing all that God had provided for them in Christ. So he used his work to picture Christ to them. Paul became a living, breathing example to them in his, in his toil, in his, uh, in, in, his, in his hard labor of the steadfastness of Christ. All other traveling teachers of the day asked for money and help, but not Paul. Paul did not just tell them about Christ. He showed them Christ. He showed them the steadfastness of Christ through his work. This has always been the way the gospel comes to a people. Yes, it, it, is, it is spoken, but it is also, it must be displayed by the bearer. God has put you, Christian, in a world to do a job that will push good into the world because he loves the world. But he has also surrounded you with people, deceived people, who may only hear, hear you speak after they've seen you rest inexplicably in the love of God as the pink slips are announced. Or perhaps not until after they've seen you patiently endure the, the, the merciless taunts of your boss, and yet they see you still do excellent work under his direction. Why? Because you are resting not in His provision, but in the provision of God. Not in His approval, but in the love of God in Christ for you. Now what I'm not talking about here and what Paul was not getting after is the old saw of preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. No, the gospel is good news. Words must always be used. But God has given you work and has put you in front of people that no one else will ever be put in front of to adorn the gospel, to adorn it as you work and as you endure through the, the, the futility of work in this age, of, of the futility of working and working and working, and then nothing happens. And those people around you see you not crushed, but placing your hope in God. God has given you this, this work, this role in your life to display God by hoping in Him. So we actually work hard at whatever work God has given us for the gospel. God has given you your work for the gospel. That there would be nothing in its way for it to speed ahead and be honored. Again, we don't have this in ourselves. The vital thing is that God would direct our hearts to His love and steadfast endurance that we might do what Daddy does wherever we go. But how does God do this? How does He direct our hearts in this way? I've mentioned two of the three ways. The first one is that as we expose ourselves to the gospel, day after day, reminding ourselves of who we are and all that we possess in Him and all that He has done. Number two, we, we pray. We pray, oh Lord, would you direct my heart? Would you cause me to really believe this more? Would you cause me really to rest in this, to hope in this? But three, 
And this is our third point. God causes us, God enables us to glorify Christ through a church, through a church that loves us with the gospel. Through a church that loves us with the gospel. Now, again, it's, it's hard to underestimate just how strong a thing Paul commands the Thessalonians to do here. The church is called to, to warn the idle people, verse 14. And they're called to separate from them. In a city where they were already ostracized and in a culture where honor and shame made up much of the culture, this was a big deal. This was strong. But remember that this comes at the end of a long line of examples given by Paul and teaching and warnings. More than this, their behavior was was staining the name of Christ publicly, whatever it was, in an ongoing way. They were, in the eyes of outsiders, obscuring the light of the world. Problem. But also see the point of this. The point of all of this was their restoration, their change, their good. What Paul is calling the church to do here is not punitive. They they were not to treat this person as an outsider, as an enemy, verse 15. But they were to act out of loving concern. These people had received many warnings, and, and the elect show that they are elect by heeding the warnings in Scripture. Well, they were not. They were showing that possibly they weren't elect. Massive problem. So the church was to come alongside them and love them enough to not leave them in this place. The church was actually to exercise loving care towards these people. That is what Paul is calling them to here. What they really need. So Paul is calling the community of Christ to act out of loyalty to its patron, its provider, Christ, and out of love to these people. So the the great point here is that you and I, Christian, especially member, you and I are responsible to encourage one another and to hold one another accountable for how we display Christ in this world. We have this responsibility, one for the other. We all need this. We we are all susceptible to drifting into, into disorder of various kinds. And our fellowship is one of of God's appointed means of grace to bring us back. And this is hard. (laughs) Um, It's hard because, for one, we we love niceness more than we love the other person. Really. We, we worship at the idol of niceness and we are willing to let the brother or sister drift off into oblivion because we don't want to be inconvenienced, because we can predict the future and we don't want anything messy. That's not love. That's not how God has loved us. So when we worship at the idol of, of niceness, when we, when we love niceness more than the other person, we show that, that we have not had our hearts directed towards the love of God towards us. That we have forgotten something of, of, of the way that God has come and loved us. 
And it's just hard confronting another person over their laziness or over their disorderly life that's, that's spilled out into the public. It's hard. How do we do this? Well, I can tell you for one, we don't begin by running around shunning and shaming people. That's not Paul's point here. Now we begin, as with everything else in the Christian life, by praying, by opening up our Bibles, that God would direct our hearts to His love, to the steadfastness of Christ, so that we may be filled with His love for others, so we may be reminded of how He has loved us. How is that? I love how someone has put it, that God loved us as we were dead, despite what we were, rebellious against Him, choosing the lie every time to change who we were. And praise God, number three is there. Praise God that He did not love us so little that He was willing to leave us in that previous state because we would be without any hope in this world. But God loved us enough to to seek to change us. And He did that through Christ. Through Christ's steadfast endurance, the love of God came to us. And we were changed irrevocably. So God calls you, Christian, to do that to the other Christian. God calls you, Christian, to display God to the other Christian, to bear the family resemblance in the church. So, what comes next? So we get at setting the example for the other person. We, we seek to get close to them and show them what an ordered life looks like to display it before them, to show them. And as we do that, as we do that, we, we speak. We speak of the traditions handed down to us. We speak and we become willing to warn them, not to punish them, not to judge them, but out of love for them. We warn them. We warn them what the Scriptures say, but then we always turn back to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Brother or sister, what have you forgotten? What have you forgotten about the, the love of God for you? What have you forgotten about the inestimable riches that you have in Christ? Why are you over there playing around in that mud puddle to use C.S. Lewis's words? When you have riches, when you are his son, when you are a privileged son of the king, what have you forgotten? What have you forgotten about how steadfast Christ was to save you? Brother, it seems like you're giving up. It seems like you're giving up, but, but know that glory is coming. Do not give up. Do not give up and, and look to the steadfastness, the, the, the patient endurance of Christ for you, and keep going. Keep going. Don't trust in man. Quit wasting your life, but enjoy all that you have in Christ. I warn you, brothers. I'm, I'm warning you, sister. Remember the love of God for you. This is what we do. This is what Paul meant for them to do one to the other. 
We warn out of love, out of the Father's love to us. We, the church, really are the body of Christ, and He really is our faithful, faithful provider. So may He direct our hearts to His love and the steadfast endurance of Christ so that in this church and outside of this church, wherever you go, whatever work God has called you to, that Christ really would be displayed to a watching, dying, deceived world. And that Christ really would be displayed and that people would behold Him. That people really would see Him. That you truly would be used to glorify, to enhance the name, to increase the fame, the honor of Christ in this world. And our lives would not in any way be wasted that God would fulfill His purpose in us. And then when He returns, He truly, really would be glorified through your life. And you would share in that glory. What a hope we have, Christian. What a hope we can take with us this week into our work, into our homes as you're changing the, the 39th diaper at 3 a.m. in the morning. As you're, as you're in that meeting with your boss and you, you on the one hand, don't even want to talk to him. And yet you remember the love of God and you humble yourself and you display Christ for all who would see it in that office. Oh, that God would come and do a divine work in us that he would truly display himself. We don't have it in us. We need God for this. So may he come and do it. So let's ask him to do this. Let's pray. Lord God, you, you are the one. God, you are good. Through the gospel, we get you, and by getting you, we get everything. We possess everything. We are so prone to forget so prone to drift, so prone to, to rest in other providers in this life, so prone to de-glorify you, to stain your name. So we need you to come. We need you to come and commission your spirit to apply the gospel to us, to, to cause us to apply it to every situation that we face. So, Father, I pray, would you this week, would you increase the honor of your Son through us before real people in this valley, before real people wherever we go this week? Would you do this? So I pray, would you direct our hearts, would you cause us to rest in your love, to revel in the infinite infinite endurance of Christ to bring us that love. We need you. So would you come, we pray. Now, Lord, I, I pray that as we, as we sit and think for a few moments and we, we sit and we think upon you, would you do that even now? Would you show us Christ? Would you show us all that we have in him? Would you 
Kindle in us afresh a joy, joy and peace in Him. Would you grace us in this way, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.